Uh, we have some varying presentations this afternoon, and we've decided to mix up our order in just a little bit. Instead of uh, John going third, or I guess, yeah, third here, uh, John Thadamano will begin with his presentation, Is Revolutionary Love Solely Christian? Question mark. Comparative Considerations of Affect and Action. Would you join me in welcoming John? In the interest of time, I'm just going to launch right in. Um, as is the case, I suspect, for many of us, we write our way into papers, and then we end up with full papers that we can't possibly <laughs> cover. So I'll get through as much of it as I can. In the weeks after the theme Revolutionary Love was announced as President Serene Jones's AR theme, a variety of scholars expressed a measure of concern, to use a mild word. In, in just one such mild response, the following adjectives and phrases occurred characterizing the theme. Revolting, onanistic, I particularly like that one. <laughs> Imperialist missionary paradigm, colonizing Christianity, and yes, theological terrorism. The virtues of scholarly restraint and objectivity in the name of scholarly re restraint and objectivity are amply in evidence. That was supposed to be funny. But. Um, others rehearsed the customary objections to the sheer presence of theology in a scholarly organization devoted to the secular study of social actions. <clears throat> Amidst this not minor brouhaha, several interlocutors, though, did raise, I believe, a significant question, a question that I uh, frame as the title of my talk, namely that the theme itself is inappropriate, not merely because we're doing theology, although that's bad enough, but that it is a theme that is decidedly Christian and Christocentric, which, of course, uh, broaches the inevitable question, is, is revolutionary love purely a, a Christian theme? Now, some of you might think that even asking that question rather than other questions that might have been triggered by some other uh, presidential theme might itself be a waste of time, and yet I think it's a question worth pursuing. I am mindful, particularly in the wake of our recent election, that we now live in a country in which white nationalists hold unprecedented power and are being appointed to cabinet-level positions and threaten genuine material harm to millions of fellow citizens of all political affiliations. At least some of us, when confronted by a national political emergency, will want to ask about what kind of affect-imbued disposition can motivate human communities to engage in revolutionary political engagement. Can it be love? What can revolutionary love mean in times such as this? In one sense, um, and in asking those questions, we have to ask, well, uh, is the theme itself solely Christian? In one sense, the charge that the theme is narrowly Christian perhaps can be just simply granted. After all, persons from other traditions do not routinely deploy this phrase, at least for the trivially true reason that most persons from other traditions, when speaking in their own idioms, do not speak English. <laughs> but more than language is at stake here. After all, it is also trivially true that at least Western Christians do not speak about karuna, compassion, 
The questions, though, of course, that are operative here are not meant in the first sense to be simply questions about translation narrowly construed. But I think there is a question of translation in another broader sense. We might ask, is revolutionary love translatable into other religious vocabularies? Would the resultant translation be mere gibberish, or would it find some purchase and be recognized therein as meaningful? Or to put the matter otherwise, do other traditions speak of revolutionary love in their own conceptual idioms? Those kinds of questions might be a way to get at the serious reservations that a variety of our AAR colleagues have expressed. So let me begin with the following strong assertion. If by revolutionary love we simply mean political agape, a term I borrow from Timothy Jackson's recent book of the same name, then there can be no translatability into other traditions. The notion of agape is too thickly and particularly Christian, emerging as it does out of an extensive, complex set of semantic, historical, theological, and ontological fields. So we cannot expect to find political agape elsewhere. So if revolutionary love can only mean political agape, our conversation, at least as I'm framing it, is over. But what if revolutionary love is understood to serve as a placeholder, a container that can be specified in robustly different ways, even tensive ways by various traditions. To put the category question in a technical way, I am asking whether revolutionary love can function as a vague comparative category, here vague in a Persian sense, and therefore admit of different, quite diverse specifications. My argument is yes revolutionary love can, in fact, be so understood. The term, although emerging obviously out of a Christian context, can be reframed as a vague category and then subsequently specified in various distinct, but I believe as it happens, not incommensurable ways. So let me do a bit of that. Now, it's also my contention that a successful vague category need not work for every tradition. In other words, it may be possible that not every tradition is interested in or capable or even interested just in, in expressing its core virtues or affects in the language of revolutionary love. So we have to be open to that possibility. My claim only is that there are non-Christian traditions, and specifically I want to talk today about engaged Buddhism and uh, Gandhi's version of Hinduism that do, in fact, uh, recognize and can be understood to recognize the validity of the term revolutionary love. In the Buddhist case, I believe that revolutionary love can be a category that captures much that is essential in the notions of karuna or metta, loving kindness, and Gandhi's notion of ahimsa, understood as he understands it. So uh, skipping quite a bit in my paper, let me say that by love as a vague notion, I will mean something like the following. A disposition of positive regard for others that issues an action that aims to reduce suffering and foster well-being. By revolutionary love, I mean love so defined, which recognizes that human life is lived within complex social, political, and cultural structures 
that impinge upon the prospects for human flourishing and suffering, and so is prepared to address those structures and remediate them as necessary for the sake of removing suffering and fostering well-being. Revolutionary love, in other words, does not restrict itself to interpersonal care, but seeks structural, that is to say, socio-political transformation. Can revolutionary love, so defined, be found in and given expression to in other religious vocabularies and conceptual idioms? Uh, my answer is yes. So let me just demonstrate that, um, admittedly quickly and in ways that will require further specification. To make my case, let me begin with some words from Thich Nhat Hanh. I find this to be quite beautiful. Aware of suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing and oppression, I vow to cultivate loving kindness and learn ways to work for the well-being of people, animals, plants, and minerals. I vow to practice generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resources for those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others, but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. Quite striking, isn't it? The forms of Thich Nhat Hanh's language, for those of us familiar with the Buddhist tradition, show that he has imported new content into the structure of the bodhisattva vow, the content of social justice. A more standard articulation of the vow might take the simple form, may I attain enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Buddhological expositions of the bodhisattva vow and its variations are innumerable. For a tradition that has held that grasping to self lies at the core of the human predicament, cultivating bodhicitta, the mind of awakening, is understood to be impossible apart from a radical commitment to the well-being of others. In this case, Thich Nhat Hanh appeals to one of the four Brahma Viharas, variously translated as the four immeasurables or the four divine abodes, in this case, loving kindness, and gives to loving kindness robust socio-political content. The bodhisattva vow now is um, and the bodhisattva, therefore, is committed to the ending of suffering in socio-political form. Now, usually, this takes the form of combating the intra-psychic factors that impede persons from coming to knowledge of, of their true relatedness with all things and the, the notion of no self. These are the three classical poisons of the Buddhist tradition, uh, raga, dvesha, and moha craving, aversion, and delusion. But here Thich Nhat Hanh recognizes that because suffering is caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, loving kindness must take concrete public configuration and expression in order to combat the socio-political forms taken by Raga, Dvesha, and Moha. So craving is not just an individual problem, but it's a political manifestation, uh, manifests itself politically as, as greed in social institutions, including arguably in the inequities of capitalism, and therefore the bodhisattva now has to engage those structures, not merely engage in a kind of private practice. <clears throat> so this is just an example of my case. 
that revolutionary love, as I've defined it as a vague category, is plainly specifiable in a discourse that is distinctively Buddhist with its own ramifications, variations of affect, commitments, and ontologies. Now let me just quickly make a case that the same is possible in Mahatma Gandhi. <clears throat> Here let me again be begin with Gandhi. A quote, I accept the interpretation of ahimsa, namely that it is not merely a negative state of harmlessness, but it is a positive state of love, of doing good even to the evildoer. But it does not mean helping the evildoer to continue uh, I skipped my, lost my place here. But it does not mean helping the evildoer to continue the wrong or tolerating it by passive acquiescence. On the contrary, love, the active state of ahimsa, requires you to resist the wrongdoer by dissociating yourself from him, even though it may offend him or injure him physically. Non-cooperation is not a passive state. Okay. It is an intensely active state more active than physical resistance or violence, passive resistance is a misnomer. In his own native idiom, Gandhi speaks of ahimsa, literally translatable as non-injury, but now gives to that negative term positive content, an, an actively political content that requires resisting the wrongdoer, the evildoer, Gandhi's entire project must be understood in such a way that positive, this unconditional positive regard must take political expression for the sake of what he called Ram Raj, the kingdom of Ram, the kingdom of God. Here again, let's listen to a tiny bit more of Gandhi. So long as the spirit of hate persists in some shape or other, it is impossible to establish peace or to gain our freedom by peaceful effort. We cannot love one another if we hate Englishmen. We cannot love the Japanese and hate Englishmen. We must either let the law of love rule us through and through or not at all. Love among ourselves based on hatred of others breaks down under the slightest pressure. The fact is that such love is never real love. It is an armed peace. Now, of course, we might make the argument that here we're not finding really another expression of revolutionary love, but we are finding a Hindu thinker who's borrowed from Christian thought, and he has explicitly acknowledged his indebtedness to the Sermon on the Mount on these matters. I concede the indebtedness is direct, and Gandhi is explicit in acknowledging it. However, despite this direct indebtedness, Gandhi also engages in a process of translation by which he transforms both Christian and, and Hindu semantic conceptual networks in creative and new ways. Gandhi speaks of love, but within another theological ontology, one I would argue is non-dualistic. A full explication of that network of terms would require tracing the connections between ahimsa, satya, satyagraha, Brahman, Advaita, Ramraj, and others. And we just don't have the time, especially because I just was handed this note to, to, do, to do all that. Um, but when one does that work, one sees that here revolutionary love takes on powerful and distinct resonances that 
uh, from which we have much to learn. But let me just uh, talk about one dimension of what we learn under Gandhi's creative work. If, as I argue, for Gandhi, self and other are both divine, that has material ramifications for how love is configured. <clears throat> In Christian configurations of love, of course, agape is largely understood to be a gift. So here, too, we have important arguments and topics of conversation between traditions to, to, to have... Um, to have, but here self and other are both divine. Hence the quest to violate the integrity of the other by means of violence violates both self and other. When the other must be resisted politically, when the other in fact is an evildoer, it will not do to engage in a way of being in the world that violates the very structure and fabric of the world. And here we must note a striking coincidence. The pursuit of structures that violate the human worth and dignity of some by privileging others, as happens in the case of imperialism and colonialism, requires nothing less than a demonstration to the colonizer that he is fundamentally mistaken. The colonized, too, might fall into loss of self-worth and dignity when cowed by brutal force and, indig and the indignity of racialized oppression. In such circumstances, both the colonizer and colonized are engaged in fundamental self-forgetting. Satyagraha, as an expression of love, therefore is a performance and evocation of the infinite worth of both self and other. This work of love is therefore simultaneously a spiritual discipline and a political performance. I cannot say enough about how deeply we must work to appreciate and give articulation to this dimension of Gandhi's work, what is for many of us in the West a peculiar coincidentia oppositorum between the personal or spiritual and the political. Here we see that revolutionary love in Gandhi's creative hands discloses possibilities for a revolutionary political love that are distinctive and not fully appreciated. So let me conclude by saying that I have proposed that revolutionary love can in fact be a vague comparative category, a conceptual category that does not erase differences but allows us to gather differences for considered reflection. Um, we have so many things to talk about. Um, is, for example, um, Eros a part of this? Love? Must it be? All of those kinds of questions remain open and matters for important disagreement, even if we can all agree that we are talking about something meaningfully captured under the category revolutionary love. Thank you. I'm Karen Baker-Fletcher from Southern Methodist University presiding. Um, next, we'll be hearing from Elaine Padilla from New York Theological Seminary, and she will be speaking on the queer arts of love, and I hope we can um, keep these to around 15 minutes so we have 10 or 15 minutes for any questions and discussion at the end. And I think that coming after John Tataminil is going to be very, uh, a very good logical order for my paper. So I also will just delve in into 
the paper itself. In light of the aftermath of these elections raised to the presidency and upon such palpable negations of love in our political scene, might there be a rise of exuberant expressions to the contrary, a backlash in the shape of bodily enactments of compassion? Certainly for love to be perceived as such potential force of social transformation, it would need to be entangled with its fragile bodily rituals. Otherwise, love might be reduced to too tidy of a concept, only pointing to an unreachable ideal. While also because love can be appropriated by clan systems that tend to over-accentuate differences and stir fervor for the purposes of alienation, domination, and exploitation, love might seem like a tool that can be too easily wielded for any kind of revolutionary movement. Perhaps love could upsurge from in between the practice of quote, ordering and classifying on the basis of essential differences, end quote, and the discomfort with that universal political system of justice, as Linda Alcoff might have assessed the paradox of our present political ideal. A political posture that embraces a relational and multiple subject who loves exuberantly, meaning beyond one's own kind, is scriptural. The, Pol the Pauline bodily ideal embedded in Galatians 3.26.28 of putting on a Christic persona for, for, um, processes of, for purposes of becoming neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, is but one example. This early baptismal formula written at a time when similar colonizing impulses were at play offers a response on CARES as revolutionary access with which to deregulate the alienated bodies crossing borders, socially, religiously, and politically. When bringing such response to today's political situation, it can resemble Gloria and Saldua's embodiment of borders, and what for Judith Butler can effectuate a queer parody and result in pastiche a repopulation of loving bodies that queerly reenact bordered existence in the sense of being hyphenated with or hyphen with might be the kind of love concept needed to visualize spaces gaining the elastic quality for the purposes of compassion. The Pauline argument in Galatians 3:26 to 28, to be clear, is not devoid of its historical milieu. The formula is implicated in its own set of universals commonly imposed upon colonized territories that categorically homogenize their various people groups and create the illusion of a dominant from all from which all a of a dominant from which all deviations split. For instance, as distinctively subversive for the transformation of social space as this verse can read, something to which Daniel Boyarin keenly exposes us is to how Paul's politics of the spirit hold a stark resemblance to the myth of, of, the, of androgyny in the works of Philo. A likely implication that Boyarin finds in this passage is a momentary erasure of gender symbolized as 
transvestism that nonetheless aims at a unitary transcendence and an idyllic origin, bodily and sexually. Such spiritual androgyny can serve to preserve the, the status quo without bodies, because it is a spiritual androgyny, without bodies, dominance remains, and the unity of desire symbolized by the ontological androgyny operates as a universal empire of being. As for Judith Butler, over time, totalities that render desire intelligible and interpret its signs symbolically appear as unified substances that take on the form of genealogies. For these, several axes of power of desire intersect one another and constitute groupings such as class, race, ethnicity, and gender. Nonetheless, buried in Galatians can lay other, possibility, other possible axes of power aiming at deregulating bodies under the one banner of the Pax Romana and beyond the symbol of androgyny. As with Clement of Alexandria, Galatians 3.26 can read as an affirmation of the desire for unity of, quote, a fully marked body, but no longer marked by the oppositional desire of one over the other, end quote. Such traces of an other's bodied expressions of caritas or of, the, of desire without the need for domination voiced as the act of putting on can be anarchic in that an axis of power with can pull selves beyond the limits of the self-same. This axis can be the kind of exuberant love revolutionizing within and with another for an ever-widening of limits such as walled or fenced territories and glass ceilings. To me, this is where the concept of putting on queers spatial limits, the embodiments of love. When considering territories under contestation, the need would be to highlight revolutions of love that spin the ideology of fixed identities with regards to bodies at the borders out of its dominant center. And Saldua, for example, embodies queer as la rajada, the one who is split, mita y mita, whose queered body by the fences at the borders confronts as a Chicana the, the territorial dominance of the world US. Gloria Ansaldúa in her poem, El Otro Mexico, aesthetically depicts, de, depicts it as 1,950 mile long open wound, dividing a pueblo, a culture, running down the length of my body, staking fence rods in my flesh, splits me, splits me, me raja, me raja. This is my home, this thin edge of barbed wire. In El Otro Mexico, as she later explains about her writing, Ansaldúa is, is enacting her queerness by subversively embodying borders, la rajadura, through a trance-like process that she calls the ethnopoetics and performance of the shaman. She's one with the, with the most ancient Cuatlalope, or indigenous Guadalupe, the dually gendered Cuatlicue. She's the goddess of the processes of male and female incarnated in the cosmos, resembling the primordial darkness that only later was given a formula for, mora for morality when split into light and dark. This allusion to Genesis with which to foreground Galatians 3.26-28 can refer to how Ansaldúa Ansaldua would put on a Christian dually gendered persona so as, such as Cualique by means of becoming La Rajada 
as if carving a bone. She learns to, quote, live with la cualique that transforms living in the borderlands from a nightmare into a numinous experience. It is always a path state to something else, end quote. As shaman, she becomes Chicana, American, Mexican, La Otra, Prietita, Prieta, Spanish, quote, male and female, desert, sand, mountain, dog, mosquito, end quote. Dreams awaken, and in becoming herself, she is able to change the world. So perhaps Galatians 3, 26 to 28 can connote what for Butler is the parodic, parodic recontextualization recontextualization by which bodies consciously alter themselves into new social uh, configurations, becoming in what she calls in whatever form and via processes that are not fixed through the uncanny articulation of convergences, quote, of multiple sexual discourses at the site of identity, end quote, can render categories permanently problematic. For Ansaldúa, La Rajadura, which displays her queerness, inhabits her as she inhabits her as she enforced split of her genders. Oh, this this reads funny. Sorry, apologize for that. Ethnicities and of the borders between Mexico and the U.S. The self-criticism that she performs accentuate quote, the hyperbolic exhibitions of the natural, end quote, that can reveal the very exaggeration and its fundamentally phantasmic status. And while parody by itself is not subversive, for it depends on, quote, a context and reception in which subversive confusions can be fostered, end quote, because parody fails at repeating itself and because it subversively mimics the subjects of production, Parody deforms categories of being human. To me, thank you, the untidy act of putting on that is sort of an erotic carry task cannot only outplay the homogenizing groupings, but also because of its contingent construction of meaning, queering love, more specifically, can expand spatial limits as spaces take on new contours according to the bodies that inhabit them. Hence, bodies can participate in an unruly kind of love drama with which to counter the destructive mechanisms that fabricate bodies. As such, the female body, the sex body, the territorialized body, while inscribed by history, moving about upon the foundations which compulsory categories operate, becomes no mere passive recipient of genealogies. The manner in which the queerly bodied Ansaldúa or Rajada, for example, gains a borderland, con borderland consciousness serves as example of ways to deconstruct markers that produce love in terms of the, of the Foucauldian surface. Deterritorializing de bodies as if spinning off a queering axis cannot play the totalizing imprint of history, its siege and destruction. More specifically, in thinking with Paul, spaces can be queered by the bodies that swell their limits with a, with a plasticity similar to, to what can occur when putting on a persona as in carnivals, in which transgressive constructions of bodies in love can disrupt the colonized limits imposed on the desiring flesh. As with Marcella Altus Reed, because of the perfection 
performative, per performative genre, the many characters bursting into the scene as well as bodies touching bodies, carnivals make more pronounced the capacity of flesh of a queen type of excess, meaning according to the multiple ways of loving an other. The carnivalesque encounter forms what she calls a polyfaithful group of sacred friends, multitudes of lovers that stretch the limits of the proper and so the bounds that define what is normal. Also because bodies come to inhabit such spaces expansively so, to put on can result in what Jan Lucnancy calls being with, the one, the other contemporaneously, in sharing an indefinite plurality of singularities at the same time in the same space, being, being hyphenated with can deconstruct the universal we that colonizes territories. By creating bonds of we with others, being with poses another boundary, a queering limit end that takes on the shape of the many origin of a many origin embedded in the hyphenated being with. For this in-between space of the querying, the spaces would require careful examination in the call for compassion. Otherwise, if race, ethnicity, gender, and class divides are being addressed to neutrally, the loving impulse to bring people together can fail at addressing the social trauma, violence, and terror, something that Bell Hooks has argued. Also, as for Alcov, only as we confront what she calls the hidden epistemic effects and the power over, over collective imaginations of the multiple manifestations of human bonding systems, quote, can we entertain even the remote possibility of, of, an, even, of an eventual transformation of society and what for many of us could lead to peacefulness. Any space in queerly shaped by access of love calls for memory to foreground the relation between the psychic work of recovery, community, and institutional change. So that there may not be blindness to conditions of inequality and the refusal for accountability for unjust power relations, political crimes need to be made known. Accountability can engender a deeper sense of forgiveness and feel greater desire for co-forming ecologies of, co of compassionate care. In summary, reading Gal Galatians 3, 26 to 28 in this manner means the transformation of history into pastiche, a subversive simulacra of the many, powers many power overs. Exuberant love can hold positive implications for the healing of memories in the enactment of the testimonial itself. Putting on or the performance of the multi-layers of the fragile web of the many ways of actualizing desire for being with can result in a poly-loving kind of peacefulness that renders geopolitical limits, limits elastic. For while colonizing access that seek to split bodies apart and pull them toward a genealogi genealogical center um, tend to androgenize, androge androgenize beings, queering access can space in the likes of the hyperbolic embodiments of love. Ruminess, made for lament and mourning, as well as intimacy and laughter, can be indicative of a land in a process of its peoples embodying the limits of history, snatching future possibilities ripe with seeds of love, hope, and joy. 
Maybe this can be another path to being human embedded in the letters to Galatians and as a backlash to what we had witnessed just this past few weeks. Thank you. Thank you, John Tatamano, and thank you, um, Elaine Padilla. Um, next, we will be hearing from Serene Jones, Union Theological Seminary President, um, and she will be speaking on revolutionary love. So thank you, thank you, Karen, and thank you to the whole panel for taking time to uh, think about this topic, revolutionary love. Um, just to say as a preface to my comments, uh, when I came up with the presidential theme of revolutionary love, I did wonder if there would be pushback because the theme seemed too political mm -hmm. or the theme seemed too normative. Um, but I did not anticipate that there would be criticism that the theme was too Christian. Um, so it's been a very interesting learning curve for me to have read the multiple criticisms and to have taken them in, because what do we do at the AAR except crack our ideas open and wrestle with them, and as we put them back together, we make them better and prepare them to be cracked once again. Um, so I have a series of just eight reflections that I'd like to share today, and I will be less than 15 minutes. Um, first of all, I appreciate this panel, and I knew as soon as the theme was put forth that both the lo word love and the word revolutionary should be pluralized. And in this panel, it's revolutions of loves. Um, in fact, uh, just as plural as we are, so too our understanding of loves and what revolution is constitutive of and yet I also think, which was very interesting in our last panel discussion, to see how if one is actually talking about the process of making revolutions of love, there has to be some point at which these loves are interlocked. And so it's a, it's a challenge for how you think about those two very important dynamics together. Secondly, I think it's very important when talking about revolutionary love to name up front all of the harms that love can do. As we've just seen in this election, some of the most vitriolic hatreds have actually been engendered by communities that claim their bonds based on deep bonds of affection and love. So some of our kinship types, our tribal instincts have underneath them the logic of love that is productive of the very hatred that love itself contests. So it's been very, third point, very interesting for me, having come up with this thing, to listen to um, the now two panels and various discussions of it. And what I have heard in those reflections are two things that I think are very important to, to put on the table. First, there is, and it has a lot to do with this particular political moment in time, that we need to have ever deeper discussions about the evil of the story we tell about who we are in America, which is a story that is evil because of what it says about bodies. And we need to have a story about who America is 
that begins with the story of genocide and chattel slavery, which was all about bodies, instead of the story we have of American exceptionalism, which begins with the construction of white bodies. And in doing so, this dynamic of how we even identify um, as America uh, begins to expose the lie and therefore in the process of engaging revolutionary love, wounds have to be exposed and have to be repaired as in reparations. So this is not a sort of um, weak kind of revolutionary love that simply wants to move forward. It recognizes fully the depth of the harms that undergird it. Um, secondly, there's been the constant um, reference to the fact that this process of creating a new America, if it is possible at all, um, is going to require work that is spiritual at its core. That the very understanding we have of what it means to be a human being in the world today needs to be turned upside down. Um, and to talk about this space that needs to be turned upside down, you could use the words, it needs to be an ethical revolution, a moral revolution, um, a spiritual revolution. There's lots of different ways to talk about it, but it's about going deep into the space, oftentimes of the unconscious and the ways in which we understand and live in our bodies and to begin to think with our imaginations and to live in practice in new ways. Um, so fourthly, just to lay out what I mean by revolutionary love, um, just to say a few words about what is conjured for me when I use that word love, nothing very carefully defined, um, but it has you know, three central features. It recognizes our fundamental interconnection and interdependence as human beings with one another and with our planet. Uh, secondly, it affirms the fundamental equality and value of every human being that exists and has existed and will exist and the fundamental value of the planet in which we find ourselves. And then thirdly, it goes beyond just a distributed understanding of equal value into the space where we talk about the capacity and the need for us to actually care for one another, to have our lives invested in the pursuit of the well-being of the other, um, not just at a distributive justice level, but as, a, as an investment in our understanding of what constitutes the terms of human flourishing. Um, by adding the term revolutionary to it and um, anchoring it in the work of James Baldwin, it makes very clear that this is not a personal revolutionary love, but it's a love that takes social form and inevitably then uh, takes institutional form. And that's where the work of reparations begins but it's also where the work of reimagination begins. And right now, I don't think we have any idea what revolutionary love looks like. Um, as I said last night, uh, we're not gonna live to see the day when it actually has the level of, of, of presence um, that would lead one to, to see the world in a fundamentally different way, way in our time. So the question, is this a Christian term? Well, yes, at one level it is. I'm a Christian theologian, but in addition to that, um, I think that it's very important to use the word revolutionary love 
because in the context of this election and in the context of our understanding of U.S. politics, the hatred that we have seen has been Christian hatred. So there's a political reason for using that kind of language in the context in which we find ourselves. It's a distinct form, long history of a church sanctified and uh, theologically justified understanding of whiteness in this country that is based on a fundamental Christian hatred. Take that one step further though, I have the wonderful advantage um, being at Union Theological Seminary and being in New York of working with a very rich mix of people from different religious traditions who have gathered together at Union um, not because they're solely interested in exploring the doctrines that our different faith traditions have and that belief systems that pull it together, but that we actually start from the place of shared commitments to social justice and the conditions of human flourishing. When you flip your understanding of what uh, interreligious engagement looks like, then you see different kinds of moments of consonance that don't appear if you're working from the top down in terms of what constitutes Christianity or Buddhism, for instance. So I've had the joy of working with uh, engaged Buddhists, but I think it's also important in this context, and this is my um, second to the last point, that the term revolutionary love I was conscious of as a political decision being a term that also speaks to a broader audience that isn't Christian, may speak to the nuns, it may speak to the atheists, the Unitarians, the humanists, but the larger body politic. And that is very important as scholars of religion that we begin to use language that is intelligible beyond the bounds of the distinctions that we are often, with good use, um, making in these rooms and halls of the AAR. And finally, last comment. It was interesting for me to read, especially um, the ways in which the criticisms of revolutionary love being Christian um, involved assumptions about what I meant by love that reduced it to a kind of love as affection and love as kind of limited to um, the, the sphere of the domestic or the intimate and a kind of wimpy term. And um, I, every time I would sort of read these books, uh, the gendered nature of the criticism became very clear to me. And I wondered if I was a philosophical theologian who had devoted my life to writing about Kierkegaard, if putting forth the context revolutionary love would have been perceived as overly Christian and mushy. Um, it was interesting, all of the assumptions that because of who I am, got put onto the notion as it moved into the sphere of this critique that it is a distinctly Christian term. So thank you all. Thank you for um, Serene Jones for your presentation. Um, next we will hear from Thomas Ord, Northwest Nazarene University speaking on empowering love for revolution, divine and creaturely action.
for my contribution to this discussion, uh, I want to offer a constructive theological proposal. Uh, this proposal represents uh, my effort to make sense of revolutionary love, both what it means and God's role in relation to it. See if this is working, it is. Constructive theology's attempt to speak about God is of course uh, inherently risky. Too often, those of us who speak about God sound hubristic. We theologians can speak as if we know too much. We sometimes sound as if we're certain or at least overly assured. So with this in mind, I wanna be clear at the outset that my theological proposal is tentative, speculative, partial, and definitely fallible. I will also not pretend to be completely objective. I will speak from my Christian perspective and my particular embodied experience with my particular history, locations, relationships, communities, etc. All this shapes my perspective. I suspect and hope, however, that those of other religious perspectives and traditions, those of other life experiences, will appreciate at least some of what I propose in my brief time today. So let me begin by trying to be clear about what I mean by this word love. I've spent much of my academic career, which is actually not all that long, but uh, some time exploring the meaning and the forms of love. Of course, this word love has many meanings in the literature. It comes in many forms. And I find that few theologians or philosophers or scholars of religion take time to define what they mean by this word love. And even fewer connect a root or fundamental definition of love with all the various forms, expressions, types of love. These are loves and revolutions, but what is love? So trying to be clear about what we mean by loves seems necessary if we want to talk about revolutionary love as a particular type. Of course, I doubt that language can ever capture the meaning of love fully or even the full meaning of revolution, but I'm convinced that language can influence our actions, so I see some value in trying to have some clarity. And if we think revolutionary love is a good thing, that should sometimes be expressed. We should have some idea about what it is that we're talking. So I've come to define love in this way. To love is to act intentionally in relational response to God, others, and creation more generally to promote overall well-being. Now I could talk a long time about each aspect of this definition, but I want to highlight the final segment of my definition to promote overall well-being because of what it entails for what I think is a good way to think about and understand revolutionary love. By well-being, I mean shalom, the common good, eudaimonia, being a blessing, the good life, or even a broad notion of salvation. But my emphasis upon overall in well-being reminds us that we intend for our local actions to promote the good of the whole. Of course, we'll always have special relations to friends and families and local communities, and we should love ourselves in the proper sense, but we should avoid acting for the good of a few at the obvious expense of the whole. As the saying goes, we should act locally but think globally. This eye toward the common good is where we rightly locate the justice aspect of love. 
Cornel West is fond of saying that justice is what love looks like in public. And his words fit my emphasis upon love having overall well-being, the big picture, the whole, the common good in mind, though it typically acts in relation to the few and the local. The justice element of love as promoting overall well-being allows me to make sense of revolutionary love as one particular type, form, or expression of love. As I see it, revolutionary love works to overcome, to overthrow, and oppose structures, systems, and authorities that undermine overall well-being. Revolutionary love seeks justice in the face of evil because it wants what's good for the wider community. We need revolutionary love when the status quo and established systems disenfranchise, oppress, and degrade our lives and our planet. We need revolutionary love when elections or military coups put into power those whose politics and rhetoric undermine well-being. Revolutionary love opposes the status quo whenever the status quo does harm and evil, whether at the local, national, or international level. In his opposition to colonialism, for example, Indonesian scholar of religion Ikaputa Tupamahu puts it this way, love that promotes the well-being of all must be the motivating force that drives every socio-political interaction. My, statement thus, my statements thus far about love in general and revolutionary love in particular could be affirmed by just about anyone. As far as I can tell, most religious perspectives could support my proposal. But I now turn to my distinctively theological aspects. In the time remaining, I want to make two proposals. One may seem rather traditional, the other more radical. My first proposal is that God is the source, inspiration, and empowerer of revolutionary love. The Apostle Paul's word, use of the word kenosis can be understood to describe God's action to encourage revolutionary love. As I see it, divine kenosis is God's self-giving, others-empowering love. God acts first in each moment to empower and inspire us to promote overall well-being. And when this action is done in the face of oppression, whether structural, institutional, or governmental, we engage in revolutionary love. This action by the source of love provides the ground of hope that our creaturely love responses can bring about positive transformation. This is the God who is with us, alongside us, before us, and behind us. Rather than positioned at a distance, removed, aloof, or uninvolved, this God is the moment-by-moment -moment empowerer and inspirer of revolutionary love. But this leads to my second proposal, one that may seem radical to some. Instead of claiming that self-giving others empowering love for revolution is something that God may or may not provide to us, I believe, God, I believe that self-giving, others-empowering love is essential to God. In terms of kenosis, I propose that kenosis is necessary to God, not some voluntary choice on God's part. God's kenosis is essential rather than accidental, to put it philosophically. In fact, I call this view essential kenosis. 
To put this more technically, self-giving, others-empowering love is logically prior to choice in God's nature. God does not and did not voluntarily choose to set aside controlling power as, God, as if God could have created a universe of robots fully controlled by God. Rather, by nature, God expresses uncontrolling love. This means God necessarily expresses uncontrolling love. God must self-give and others empower. And God cannot withdraw, override, or fail to provide to creation the freedom, agency, and existence. I'm not saying that some force outside of God constrains God, nor am I affirming the voluntary self-limitation so common among canonic theologians. My claim is that God's own loving nature is uncontrolling love. Of course, to say God must love and God cannot withdraw, override, or fail to provide freedom, agency, and existence will strike some as radical. Some may ask, who are you to say what God can't do? Now, this is a legitimate question. But let me remind us that I'm making a speculative proposal today. I definitely admit to being fallible. I don't know what God's like. I see as if looking through a darkened glass to use the language of my Christian tradition. But I'm proposing this way of thinking that God must love and divine love is necessarily uncontrolling in light of the world in which we actually live. A world with both good and evil, justice and injustice, beauty and unnecessary suffering. And I propose that this way of thinking in light of the world, and I propose this way of thinking in light of the world that we want to be, a world in which love reigns supreme. In the last year, I had a book come out on this particular subject, and I explained in more detail the things I'm talking about today. But since the book's release, I've received tons of notes from folks who find the view attractive or not attractive, depending on their perspective. Some of these notes come from scholars or students of uh, religion, but others come from victims of abuse. Many who have been sexually abused say that my book allowed them to believe that God loves them, but neither caused nor allowed the evil they suffered. One woman put it this way in a note. Outside of an understanding of an uncontrolling God, there's no potential for truly transcending the human experience of trauma, for living life abundantly, and for worshiping freely. The God who controls could not be my anchor, she says, but the God who loves me, comforts me, brings me support by, by prompting the actions of others and guides my choices most certainly can. If God is controlling or could be controlling, one should conclude that abuse and oppression by individuals, systems, institutions, or dictators are what God either caused or at least allowed. This means that individual cases of mistreatment or the unjust aspects of the status quo are either caused or allowed by God. If God is or could control others, God is culpable for causing or allowing evil. Furthermore, if God is capable of control, any attempt to overturn oppressive systems, governments, and institutions might rightly be thought to be against God's wishes. 
After all, it's hard to be motivated to express revolutionary love if we believe God set up, endorses, or even allows the unrighteous status quo. However, if we believe that God is necessarily uncontrolling, which means God cannot control others and cannot act as a sufficient cause or unilateral determiner, we need not think the status quo is God's design. We need not think the last election is what God wanted. If God cannot control, we need not think repressive systems and tyrannical leaders are divinely endorsed. Most of us know we ought to love. We know and we want to be part of a love revolution. Despite the theologies of omnipotence we have inherited, we intuit the call of persuasive love. We need a theology that supports the love revolution we desperately need. And I propose that we who feel called to express revolutionary love should set aside the view that God is in control or could even be in control. We should instead believe in the God who is the source, inspiration, and, and empowerer of the loving actions that oppose injustice and promote overall well-being. This is a God who calls for revolution for the sake of what is truly good. Combining the view that God self-gives and others empowers along with the view that God is not in control and cannot control others entirely, we can be motivated to express revolutionary love and thereby promote overall well-being. Thank you. We will now hear from our respondent, Catherine Keller, professor from um, Jew University School of Theology. Thank you. Revolutionary love. Of course, the triumph of the season was of revolutionary hate. So the politics of love might actually, at this moment, be seeming a bit ridiculous. But it always did. So as Che Guevara said, at the risk of sounding ridiculous, let me say that the true revolutionary is guided by feelings of love. The thing about love is you cannot use the word too much or it does quickly turn to sweet slime. <laughs> God does that too. Um, so did we shoot love's wad by letting it come to the fore of the AAR? <laughs> <laughs> or to the contrary, does its tensive pairing with revolution save both terms from ridicule? Well, of course not. This is the academy. <laughs> but it may be that as with the original coincidencia oppositorum, a negative theological break, <laughs> uh, is what that phrase signals, a break from cliche, uh, is also here affected with the phrase. It may be that it will have been in the past future of AAR programming, bursting through prophetically, answering already in advance what has in fact triumphed, <laughs> that word. <laughs> in 
Engaging this lovably revolutionary fourfold, I want to reinforce a common fold, the live-bodied, yes-charged affect of love, which I think is now politically indispensable for intensifying vast coalitional force fields for social justice and ecological sanity. The politics of love, however, did not wait for a Christian launch. It was already articulated in revolutionary left atheist form early in the millennium, right, by Hart and Negrate. But now, love may be already bodying forth new possibilities. Revolutionary without revolving backwards in violent reaction. This means we reach into our fullest, earthiest, collective bodies. This means also that love knows how to mourn and how to mobilize. So I think all that language I just used was still passably secular. Uh, as is John Tatamanil's definition of revolutionary love, a positive affect-laden commitment that wishes for the well-being of others, a commitment that does not restrict itself to interpersonal care, but seeks structural, that is to say, socio-political transformation. And this reverberates in, in Tom Ord's sense of its promotion of overall well-being. Um, of course, frankly, I have not often bumped into Christians uh, using the phrase revolutionary love, let alone you know, members of other traditions. Love, however, operating at this pitch of political intensity cannot quite filter out all Christian tonal effects. So the uh, mild <laughs> AAR concern surely did need to arise. Christian exceptionalism, terrorist or courteous, may always be asserting itself in the name of love. So as a Christian theologian on a panel so warmly packed with theologians, I courteously insist that whatever religious difference we willingly embody had best not get repressed right now in the interest of an affective vibrancy that has half a chance of not getting historically trumped by the charisma of hate, this is a time for the pluralism not of the least common denominator, but of the most common good. A multiplicity not then of neutralized liberal disentanglement, but of mindfully entangled difference. But here I do yield to Tatamanil's comparativist authority and only want to add that biblical love is not a sentimental, self-canceling sort, even when it uh, risks crucifixion. It is based on a quite nearly Darwinian evolutionary assumption of basic self-love. Love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus, which is also do unto others as you would have them do to you. So love that other as you love your own religion or irreligion. And let me briefly from confirm here its comparativist potential across three other registers. Jainism <laughs> from the Mahavira, one should treat all creatures in the world as one would like to be treated. Confucius, the Analects. Do not do to others what you do not want done to yourself. And in Islam, from An-Nawari's 40 hadiths, none of you truly believes. 
until he wishes for his brother what he wishes for himself. The point is not that these are the same uh, or that they're automatically systemic, though they do press towards the socio-political. The point is that they are comparable and potentially coalitional. And that therefore, an amorously entangled force field of religions can build up an alternative political theology, alternative to the one that is already so triumphantly in play, fully secularized, quite as Carl Schmitt outlined. All modern political concepts are secularized theology, and I think you recognize that by now. And the prime example for him was sovereignty pumped from the theocracy of Christian omnipotence. So this is why we do need Tom Ord's Christian deconstruction of Christian omnipotence. So I would argue that to purge religious residues from the language of the left is just to cede politics to the already secularized sovereignty of state, which the counter-revolutionary Schmidt welcomed in the embodiment of the charismatic leader, the Führer, who decides in the exception, the state of emergency. We do not yet know what states of emergency will be imposed. We only know we are entering one such state. And we may not yet grok the novel power by which the anti-secular US religious right has managed to fuse with the naked secularism of its own white Christian supremacism. You know, the not-so-new atheist Sam Harris did capture the irony nicely in a recent blog. Uh, Congratulations, Christian right, you have elected the first atheist US president. <laughs> we will face the power of the exception to break and make rules to unify friends against the trumped-up foes, especially the racialized ones within, who must be subdued or expelled. And this is new, and this is ominously old and familiar, especially for our European friends. So if we are involved in a political theology of revolutionary love, it is at least for strategic reasons. The stirring of amorous affect is not in this context for the sake of the affectionate bonds uh, that become possible, but of the difference bonds can make. Some of us will risk a Christ-drenched and also secularized signifier like love in order to resist the secularized Christian sovereignty of the white right. Now, <laughs> in order to stir up an energetic potentiality, what Agamben distinguishes as potentia, uh, in resistance to the potestas of the nationalist state, we keep pushing further, I think, now together into the potentiality of an alternative political theology. A secularized theology of omnipotence lends potestas its aura of pious inevitability and always has. Winning is self-justifying. As Tom Ord reveals, if God is controlling or could be controlling, one should conclude that the oppressive systems, institutions, dictators are what God wants. 
Tom's process God is not just not controlling, but cannot control. His exercise, Tom's exercise in essential kenosis resonates, I think, for instance, with the self-emptying work of Buddhist karuna. Of course, Tom's argument is so deeply internal to Christianity in its deconstruction of Christian potestas that in order to mount a secularist objection to it, one would have to object to deconstruction as such. Why? Because, as Derrida put it, deconstruction is necessarily an inside job. So, of course, it does also undo any uh, certainty about God's essence along the way. Love figures an alternative to the bully God and his bully sovereignty and all his bully boys who have now been newly unleashed and are busy assaulting the dreams and the screens and the schoolyards of our land. So love, love mourns and it mobilizes. It makes now into politics an interplay, the love interplay of passion and compassion, of lure and vulnerability, of a coming potentia and a becoming body. Here, with Elaine Padilla's help, the process theological potential bursts into its broad, sensuous spectrum of tones and colors. Now that the white masculinism of omnipotence in the US exceptionalist form has become manifest, can love work for us? unless it queers our revolution? In the vibrational field of Padilla's theology, human and non-human bodies uh, become revolutionary axes for an unruly kind of love drama. And she stages it precisely where queerness converges with a border crossing decolonization, which begins to deterritorialize the collective bodies of love. With guidance, we find ourselves right at the border. <laughs> Anzaldúa's 1950-mile-long open wound. Now imagine pouring into that wound the foundations for the wall. Lines, hard lines, are being drawn in the sand and go north to Dakota, where the Sioux prediction of the great black serpent is materializing as the oil pipeline. And we see crisscrossing lines, sandier, unruly earth axes mounting interspiritual alliances. It is hard and important now <laughs> to contemplate, for instance, what the revolutionary love encampment of the Standing Rock Sioux is going to be facing in the new year. Peoples, waters, atmosphere, climate, earth, all at stake, all staked out, and all of our resistances over so many decades, all of our resistances have in a definitive sense failed, folks. But take heart. Queer theory teaches the queer art of failure. <laughs> Jack Haberstam here is echoing Beckett. Ever tried, ever failed, no matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. That's in his play, Late, Worstward Ho. Well, the West's worst <laughs> is also threatening in the rightward dynamism 
of anti-immigrant politics in Europe now, isn't it? Yeah, worst word ho. I would propose also that as our revolutionary love fails again, and maybe better in the future, it could try getting intertranslatable with evolutionary love. Evolutionary love, well, just as ridiculous a notion. Evolution has been misread as meaning some mechanical predictable progress driven by ruthless proto-capitalist competition. However, a systemic ecology of reciprocal emergence inhabited by embodied, embedded cognition unfolding a material symbiogenesis is also by way of new biologies proposing its own planetary love, an evo-revolution. So it is fortunate that Serene Jones' rendition of something better has spoken magnificently for itself today and especially last night. She said last night that revolutionary love in the midst of seismic shifts is a call to a way of being that we can now hardly imagine. But she has helped us already to imagine it. She channeled James Baldwin. Love is a deep, fierce social force. Let me call it grace. And a process of truth-telling. President Jones, redeeming the very notion of president for us. <laughs> president Jones nailed the fear of white Christians of becoming a minority, even a killable one. I would just underscore that the triumphant white supremacism of this moment can only be addressed through the almost imaginable answering force of amorous alliance. We of the academy cannot therefore settle into irritable monocausal mono identitarian notions of difference and diversity right now when we must press with intersectional intensity against that house that race built and the white house it is now building. Against the, press, we press against the abyss of class difference it will seek, uh, it's pressing against the abyss of class difference that will seek that it will radicalize against the religious as well as ethnic force of Islamophobia we must press and against the racialized and sexualized assault on undocumented immigrants, not to mention the assault on nasty women and their pussies. As my niece says, pussy, that's now presidential language. We can use it in public. And of course, on all who tell the truth of the two degrees apocalypse, this government will perpetrate now as soon as possible on all earthlings, including those rather hard to love white working class males. So if we don't fail better at the Evo revolution, we may finally actually succeed at human extinction. Revolutionary love then is not, yeah, is not the only language we need to boost now the improbable alliance we need, but it is indispensable language. Love can keep revolutionary uh, agonistic rather than antagonistic, and revolutionary can keep love public and militant rather than undifferentiating and self-defeating. It is indeed this revolutionary love already among us here 
during these very days beginning to energize an excess of allied differences where catastrophe can translate into catalyst, where together we can mourn and we can mobilize. Thanks. Thank you, Catherine Keller, for responding. Thank you to each of our panelists. Um, we have, well, it's 2.24. So until people start shoving through the doors, we will have some discussion. I want to leave time for um, our listeners here to ask any questions. Before we do that, do any of the five of you have a need to give a quick response to Keller? Or one another? No. All right. Then we will take questions from our listeners, our hearers. Yes. Were you raising your hand? Yes. Thank you. Okay. I just wanted to make sure that you could hear me. Uh, first of all, thank you to all the panelists on a, a very compelling uh, conversation about what it means to love in this time of crisis or ongoing crisis. I'm not, I'm not sure we've ever really left the status of crisis as a human society. But, um, and, and that said, I, uh, I appreciate all of the, the talk on what it means um, to mobilize, what it means to combat structures of oppression through the lens of love. But I'm curious to know how that might manifest on a more personal level in terms of actually loving those whom we perceive as the enemy. And, uh, and I mean that in whatever, whatever context. What does it mean to love the enemy, whoever that enemy may, may be uh, in the con various contexts from which you are speaking? Thank you. Thank you. Who would like to go first? John and Catherine. There are so many um, ways to answer that question from the various traditions that I spoke from today, uh, so let me try that. Thich Nhat Hanh is particularly compelling in, in this regard because, of course, he had to deal with threats to his life and in the context of the Vietnam War, and he routinely had practices in which he would envision himself uh, as, in some sense, his enemy. What would I have become had I been raised in similar circumstances uh, with familial patterns and structures and other sort of structures that, that, f that engaged in self-formation, would I have been other than my enemy? And his answer is almost always likely not. So it's a very counterintuitive and therefore, I think, astonishing practice that um, is meant to body forth a kind of compassion that's profoundly counterintuitive and therefore probably necessary. So. Um, that is a kind of radical, non-dualist way of getting to um, a discourse of loving the enemy. We can also, of course, be mindful of the ways in which King names that what we are engaging in is a conflict with principalities and powers and not persons. At the heart of all um, attempts to speak about nonviolence is that kind of recognition. We, we, we are fighting what the other is claimed by in the name of the other's well-being. 
Um, and that too is a way of engaging in concrete practices of love for the other who is claimed and, and serving forces that are not in his or her best interest either. So those are some of the sort of quick thoughts that I have to, um, but you see this can be approached through various conceptual frames, even um, out of various ontologies. Thank you, John Tantaminal. Catherine Keller, and then we have another question yeah, so after you. Briefly, I, mean, I, I think that's a huge one. Um, when loving the enemy feels sentimental, I remember Paul's version of it, you know, love the enemy, it will heat burning coals upon his head. Uh, <laughs> but, um, because we hold the enemy accountable to a, a full standard of being human, that's a form of respect. That's, that's loving, right? It isn't approving of, of something the enemy has said or done, not about liking the enemy. I do feel very grateful that I'm teaching somewhere where I don't actually have to interact on the whole with Trump voters. That makes it really easy. It also means that I am not developing a, a good practice uh, for cultivating uh, the true common good of a nation. So those of you who are working in, in, in classrooms and in communities where you have to cross that divide, or families where you're doing it, uh, it's a, and this is not just a spiritual practice, it's an important political practice, because just asserting difference, folks, isn't going to help us very far. You know, it doesn't even name class difference, you know, because we can't affirm class difference. So just affirming difference isn't the politics we need. And what we do need is a politics that can claim uh, a discourse of the common good. And I suspect that, that the, the enemy love is, is going to remain in multiple secularized uh, and not so secularized forms, an important uh, motive force for that sense of the commons. Thank you. One last real quick thing is, and it, it only, it, it seems small compared to the grandness of, of these two answers. Um, but when I think about in this election, the enemy, um, the enemy is my people. I mean, they are my relatives. They are the people I grew up with in Oklahoma. And I actually do love them. Um, and I think that gives me a particular role to play in this um, because um, there is an understanding and a connection there that actually requires that I, I push against them and engage them precisely because of the, that love and understanding that undergirds that relationship. And I'm horrified by what they've done. Thank you, John Tantaminal, Catherine Keller, Serene Jones. And will you say your name as you ask your question, please? I'm sorry I didn't do it with the first questioner, but. Um, sure, my, my name is Emily Kempson. I'm a PhD student in theology. Uh, thank all of you so much for, for your talk. I'm especially taken by the need to mobilize and, and do things. That's what one of my responses to the election has been, is sort of being galvanized as much as horrified. And as we, so many of us are gathered here from places all over the country and from other countries as well. I wondered if I could have some of your advice and thoughts on a very logistical, almost practical best practices level that as we go back into our communities and where we come from, what sort of practices do you, of organization and mobilization do you think are actually productive along these lines? And perhaps equally important, what do you think might be the red herrings 
because I could imagine going back and getting people together and end up ending up trying to do something that sort of is reinventing the wheel or not getting much of anywhere. And um, so I, I would just be really interested to hear your thoughts in terms of what, what beginnings of process uh, as we return would be more productive, especially the ones that are not, um, as we exist in the institutions we already are, whether they're academic or ecclesial or other sorts of political structures, um, what are the ones that are a little bit separate and ancillary as we try to build the networks that will be necessary probably for decades to come in response to our shift in circumstances? That's sort of, you know, your practical thoughts from what you've seen and what you've read about would be much appreciated. Thank you. Thursday, I'm going to sit down at, at lunch across from my brother who was a Trump supporter since the summer. <laughs> and I've been thinking about, I don't know why I'm getting emotional about this, but <laughs> <It's all right>. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, we had arguments. I said, there's no way Trump is going to make it out of the primary. <laughs> of course, that was wrong. Um, and so I've been thinking about a very practical thing I can do with my family member who th sees the world differently than I do. And I think one of the things I want to do with him and others like him is to do what I wish they would do to me, and that is to listen to them. Um, mm. In the last week or so, I've sometimes begun conversations with a really provocative phrase. I've said, I love Donald Trump. And then I say, I didn't vote for him. I think his policies are bad. I think the way he acts, or they, the ways people shouldn't ask. But love calls for us to seek the well-being of others, and that includes even Donald Trump. I think his well-being would be enhanced if he had a very different orientation on the world. <laughs> so my listening to those who like him and trying to think about where who they are and how they might see the world differently could give some insights in to how I might respond to help them in their world to promote their well-being. If I may, I have a question from a colleague that was texted to me who had to leave early. Do you mind? Uh, she wants me to ask, what do the panelists think love would be in a concentration camp? Is it spiritual resisting with acts of compassion? And she has in mind Rabbi Regina Jonas, and she wants to, us to bring in this question uh, uh, as a Jewish um, a response from a, a Jewish colleague whose parents are the survivor of the Holocaust. So can I answer? I respond to that and also connect it to the last question about strategies. Um, I think that one of the things that we need to avoid and call it a red herring is that um, we need to not turn on each other with presumptions of what is the principle and finest way to participate in revolutionary love. Um, and I think that was one of the most um, uh, complex features of life as a Jew in Nazi Germany. 
mm-hmm. um, was the varied forms that love took in, in resistance, but also in compassion, and even in the face of certain death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we start parsing the character of love in its revolutionary form, um, uh, you know, as um, um, we will actually be undoing the very possibilities that revolutionary love has within it. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, um, Serene Jones. Two there quick, are others. Very quick. I, I just want to note also perhaps thinking of Hagamben, who was very worried about, uh, in Homo Sacer already, about a proliferation of camps he expected in the new future, in the in near future. That was 20 years ago. He's writing that. And now, of course, uh, that's, that's happening in Europe. Camps, not concentration camps, but camps mm-hmm. uh, on, on a model that is all, all, all too uh, reminiscent of those other camps in, in which the other <laughs> was enclosed. Um, and I think we're going to see camps here. I think Texas is going to be a real site for new camps. So uh, yes, those analogies to the Second World War remain important. Something completely different, just in terms of strategies uh, of, of a practical sort. This is one I, I almost never hear mentioned in a context uh, like the AAR, uh, and it's time to get it out there. Encourage, encourage young people who might have it in them to, damn it, run for office. Yes. Run for local <laughs> office, and if you're not running, support folk who are, uh, to just give up now on national uh, government and its its local modes of democracy because it has betrayed us so badly is just suicidal and merely working in social movements and protest is going to fail badly we can fail better <laughs> by keeping keeping up uh, keeping up interaction between pressure from social movements and and support of, of sane um, of, of saying elector, electoral leaders. Yeah. Um, I want to go to the term compassion because I think compassion at times seems to be like a weaker term of passion. Uh, when we consider passion, we could, uh, I guess, you know, it's it's, a passion with that it doesn't have to be just, uh, it, it entails the weeping and the mourning and the lament and the healing, but in addition to that, it also entails the acting on behalf of passionately and forcefully mm. and powerfully. And I think it has also that side of strength. And so it requires that tension between, um, you know, that observing and keeping with the tension of, of being forceful at times while also being healing at times uh, with those that, need, that we need to be healers with and, and forceful with those that we need to be forceful with. So the compassion doesn't eliminate the passionate about it in all its different shades. And I think that is needed in politics, that is needed um, even in a situation of a camp concentration 
where if we look at, if we read Elie Wiesel and many of the stories, uh, many other writings, we, that's what we, we gain a sense for that. And I think that, that the, compassion to me doesn't, doesn't really evoke a, a weaker sense of partic political participation. Thank you, Elaine Padilla, Catherine Keller, Serene Jones. Um, it is 2.40. Um, we can leave, but if, would you want, want, if you have one more question, we have one more question at the mic. Yes, Very thank good. you. The lights are in my eyes, so I didn't see you. But thank um, you. I will make it brief. Your name? My name is Christine from Boston University. Very good. Um, thank you for um, choosing the theme of revolutionary love. I think it's very um, relevant in this context. And I just wanted to hear more about the potential resources in terms of practical but philosophical, theological even, um, in order to avoid the discourse of revolutionary love um, and in terms of how can we juxtapose with the notion of justice. Um, when we talk about compassion even, you know, sometimes we feel like, you know, the context of the camp that we talked about, you know, how can we avoid uh, making the discourse sound like some kind of easy, you know, narrative of redemption? You know, how can we really embody the notion of justice while, um, you know, holding on to this notion of revolutionary love? I'll say something. Well, I, I don't think revolutionary love excludes understandings of justice. Um, and this, go, uh, your, connection, your question connects to the earlier one in terms of you know, more specific strategies. So in a very interesting, almost ironic way, um, uh, the social movements in the United States have over the past 50 years uh, very much uh, focused on um, a deeper and deeper articulation of difference and of um, the features of identity that distinguish us um, after a long history of those being invisible. Um, and yet, uh, one of the, I think, important strategies moving forward is going to be, for instance, when there's an insistence that Muslims register, that we all become Muslims. Um, that when there um, is increased scrutiny of people who have become felons, and the strategy around the box that doesn't seem to leave, that we all check the box. Um, that we, you begin to vacate some of these categories that are gonna be used aggressively to, to exclude and harm um, in ways that you, you, you make the bucket so large that, that the actions meant to isolate um, are gutted of their power to do so. And, and those are fundamentally uh, the kind of uh, strategic, anarchic mm -hmm. actions of a creative, nonviolent res yeah. resistance. Mm -hmm. you, you, it has to have about it a, a kind of novelty and a playfulness that, that just mm -hmm. doesn't just mimic past mm -hmm. formations of resistance. And, mm -hmm. and these kinds of becoming Muslims or checking the boxes are precisely the equivalent of over, overrunning the jails mm -hmm. um, that, that Gandhi mobilized. You, know, mm -hmm. you just can, cannot throw mm -hmm. huge populations beyond prison capacities. Mm -hmm. no. So that was a strategy then. Mm -hmm. We might try other str strategies now. I'm struck in my, in my 
preparation, rereading Gandhi, really um, highlighted for me that peculiar coincidentia pisatorum that I talked about of the personal and the political, that the, the crafts of self-care by which one claims and therefore performs one's intrinsic dignity and inviolability as a kind of affirmation before the one who denies that and demonstrates to the one who denies it that in denying this to me, he or she is denying it to himself. This profound, absolute coincidence of, of the personal and the political is something we need to contemplate powerfully and, and then actually <coughs> practice. It's not likely that we're going to be able to talk about this well if we can't in some way begin to <laughs> feel the power of it in the body. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah. that would also be something I'd add. <coughs> Thank you very much to all of our um, panelists, all of our professors, um, doctors, um, and thank you to you, all of our listeners. Thank you to everyone for your passion, your compassion, your anarchic, nonviolent resistance. <laughs> <laughs>